Well, how are you doing this morning? You ready to hear the Word of God this morning? Yeah, me too. So as we get started uh, together, I want to I show you an image up on the screen, a, a picture that is simultaneously both a duck and a rabbit. Okay? So that is... Uh, that is a picture, it's a pretty famous picture actually, of something that is at the same time both a duck and a rabbit. Now, some of you can immediately see that reality. Others of you are struggling, but you'll catch on. Others of you will go home at the end of the service and you'll still say, I don't get it. I don't see it. And I show you that, uh, that image, really to try to illustrate a, a reality, a truth. And that is that uh, when we see something, when we finally get it, it seems obvious. It's, it seems kind of apparent. And then sometimes we sort of take the next step and, and we don't really understand why everybody else can't see it. Because after all, it's so obvious, it's so apparent that the uh, bunny's ears and the duck's bill are exactly the same thing. And that just is the way life operates for us. And it's, uh, it's even true in the spiritual realm. Spiritual truths that uh, some people just don't get or are having a hard time understanding that, that have become obvious to us we look back at it and we, and, and we sometimes wonder why they are struggling so much to understand this. I've heard people, I'm sure you have as well, who will, who will make a statement, something like this. Uh, I can't understand why people don't understand the truth of the gospel. It is so obvious that Jesus is Lord. The answer, of course, is that spiritual truth is not discerned with physical senses and that one cannot see, understand, and comprehend the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the prior enabling work of the Spirit of God. In Matthew chapter 16, when Peter makes the incredible confession about Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus immediately says, you are blessed, Peter, because it was my father who revealed that to you. You didn't get it on your own. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at together this morning. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 17. As we come back to part two of a message we began last week called Glory on the Mountain. Let me pray as we begin together. Father, thank you for our time together in the Word. Thank you you have given us the Scriptures. Thank you that we can find there that which we need to know about you, that which you desire to reveal to us. And Father, all of our questions and all of our curiosities are not necessarily answered. In fact, they are not answered in your Word, but all that is necessary for life and godliness is here for us. And so, Father, as we take a look into this passage and, and explore and tease out the realities that are here, I pray for understanding for all of us. Father, may your Spirit do his work among us. May he make his word effectual in our hearts today. 
For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We are here in Matthew 17, and we are at uh, what uh, part of Scripture some call the, uh, the messianic mystery. The messianic mystery. And, and what they mean by that is, is that it, in this passage, we find together here the, the mystery of the glory and the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's the messianic ministry, uh, mystery. The Old Testament repeatedly presents Messiah in sort of two apparently conflicting or, or apparently contradictory realities. The prophets speak of the Messiah as the coming and glorious king who will have a great and glorious reign, who will put his enemies under his foot, who will establish the kingdom of God, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and truth and prosperity upon the earth. But the prophets also speak of a coming messianic king who will suffer and who will die and who will be forsaken and will suffer great shame. And it's the messianic ministry because in the Old Testament those those realities are presented there, but, but how they work out is not revealed. It remains a tremendous mystery. Now, you and I have the benefit of the hindsight being on the other side of the cross and, and the completed scripture for us, and so we're able to put pieces of the mystery together much more easily. And at times we might think, I don't get it, what's the big deal? But we've got the end of the story. And so as we look here at Matthew 17, we, we need to work hard at staying within the, the, the progressive unfolding of the revelation of God. If we have any hope to try to understand how significant this transfiguration event was for those who experienced and continues to be. It's the truth of who Christ is is unfolded. I speak about the, the glory and the suffering of Messiah, and I want to illustrate that for you a little bit. So, so we don't have to turn there, but, but the prophet Isaiah... The great prophet Isaiah has some of the most amazing prophecies that speak of the glory and the suffering of the king. For example, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. Speaking of his coming Messiah, with righteousness, he, that is Messiah, will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. I want to be on his team. You know what I'm saying? He's the coming one. A prophecy given to Israel in in some of their darkest days. When the shadow of the Babylonian scourge hangs over them. And they have this amazing prophecy of the coming one who will make it all right. And who wouldn't look forward to that? Who wouldn't want him to come? Power and might. But later, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, writing of the shame of the coming king. He writes there that he, that is the Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, 
so he did not open his mouth. You've got to imagine Isaiah scratching his long white beard and wondering, God, what are you telling me? What are you telling me? How do we put this all together? These apparently conflicting portrayals of the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter tells us that the prophets indeed were trying to put the pieces together and put many of the pieces in place. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 and following, he says that these prophets made careful searches and inquiries. Where did they make their careful searches and inquiries? Into their own writings. And into the writings of their brother prophets. Careful searches and inquiries. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What person? What time? How? Who? Does it all fit together? I'm ask you a question. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that an afterthought? Is that a plan B? Is that something that God puts in place because the first coming was not successful, didn't work out exactly how he would have it work out? What about the great messianic kingdom that was, that was promised by the prophets? What happened to that? Are we in it? Did it somehow just get put aside? Did it get redefined? Did the spiritual promises get stripped out of it and all the physical, tangible realities of, the, of those prophecies get pushed away, forfeited? Did Israel lose her kingdom? Did it somehow morph into a spiritual kingdom? These are real questions. Some that have more apparent answers than others. Can man's rebellion disrail the plans of God? If God is sovereign, what about human moral responsibility? How does that work out? The answers of some of these questions may be very, very obvious to you. You may be sitting there, come on, ask me a hard one. Others of you may be sitting there saying, wow, I don't know. Some may be sitting there saying, what in the world are you even talking about? We're in different places. I need to tell you that for the, for the disciples of Jesus Christ, these questions, these kinds of questions, are not merely of an academic interest. These were deep questions. These are troubling questions. Perplexing questions. 
unnerving kinds of questions and potentially faith-damaging kinds of questions. So we began last time, we said here in verses 1 to 13, there's probably many ways we could break it up, but we're breaking it up into threes, into triads, and we said there are three mysteriously tantalizing aspects of Jesus' glory that we want to look at together here that'll boost our faith when it falters. Anybody here faith faltering? Struggling a little bit to put pieces together? God has something to say to you this morning through his word. Now this transfiguration, we spoke of this last time and without re-preaching that sermon all over again and I just direct you to the website for it, but the transfiguration follows chronologically and, uh, and in terms of a textual presentation, immediately following the verse 28 of chapter 16, where Jesus says to his disciples whose faith right at that point in time is in a very precarious place because Jesus has just revealed to them his impending rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. They don't know what to make of it all. They thought things were going well. They thought the kingdom is soon to be here. Messiah's tie to popularity still appears to be strong. They are going to be on the inside track. It looks like a pretty good deal. And then he comes along and ruins it all by telling him he's going to suffer and die. And so he, he gives them this vision. He takes them on this camping trip, or at least representatives, three of them, Peter, James, and John, in order to bolster their faith. And says that you will not die, tasting death being a euphemism for death. Some of you here of the twelve will not die until they, they see the, the Son of Man coming in his, in his kingdom. That is, until they get a glimpse of the reality of Messiah in all his glory. Six days later, he takes those three up camping into the, into the, uh, up into Mount Hermon and into the up into the heights there of Mount Hermon, and, and there he is transfigured before them. Now why does he do it? He, he does it to, to, sta- to fortify the staggering faith of these disciples. He also does it to, I think, for his own benefit. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9 says that, that he went up there onto the mountain to pray and he, he took them with him. In all of these accounts of, of, the, of the ministry of Jesus Christ, I think it's critical we keep an eye on his humanity and not forget the reality that, that the man Christ Jesus was headed to a cross the full implications and realities of which you and I cannot understand. But he knew. And as the time grew near, the dread of what he came to do pressed ever heavy on his soul. He went off to pray. He took his disciples with him. While praying, he was transfigured. While praying, God sent to him Moses and Elijah, and they conversed together. Well, Following that prayer, God the Father speaks in such a way that the disciples hear, but, but don't miss the fact that Jesus hears it too. 
And it's confirming for him. It's encouraging for him. It's faith strengthening for him. And so why did he go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration? Why was he transfigured? It was to, to encourage him as he faced the cross. It was to, it was to fortify the disciples. If Messiah is going to die, how is he going to conquer and rule? They need an answer. By the way, that's not just a question that uh, was something that they were, were troubled with in their particular time and place, and now everybody's figured it out, and it's not such a, a big question anymore. It's a question that continues to haunt the Jewish people to this day. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he says that in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. The idea of a crucified Messiah remains to this day a stumbling block to the Jewish people. It's not an easy obstacle. It's a foolish notion to the Gentile world. A crucified king? Preposterous. But it's not. And so here in, in verses 1 through 4, we, we find that first tantalizing aspect. I'm calling it describing the the uh, indescribable, describing the indescribable. And let me just read it for you. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brethren, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. They went up onto the mountain and, and Jesus was transfigured. Jesus was transformed. Something tangible, real happened on that mountain. What exactly happened, we don't know. He peeled back his flesh, as it were, and, and gave them a glimpse of the reality of the second person of the triune Godhead. They saw his glory. And the gospel writers struggle to try to explain what it is they saw. It was indescribable for them, so they, they concentrate on his clothes and his face and and they talk about his clothes being white and, his, and shining. And, and, and Matthew speaks here about an intensity of the light that, that emanates forth from him. Defies description. They saw Jesus in his glory. They, they saw the Son of Man in his kingdom. They're stunned. Luke tells us that they had been sleeping, had gone up at night, and they comes down the next day. This was an overnight camping trip. 
So I think with a little sanctified imagination, it's not too hard to, to think Jesus praying and them sleeping. We've got precedent for that, don't we? So they're, they're awakened, perhaps, by, by this, this bright light that is, that, is, that is brighter than the sun. They're kind of wiping the sleep from their eyes, and they're, and they're seeing this thing. And, and then, lo and behold, Moses and Elijah appear talking to Jesus. Someone asked me even this morning, they said, you know, someone asked me a question. How do, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? Great question. I'll have to wait till we get the glory to ask them, right? Somehow they understand this. And, and Moses and Elijah are there and they're, and they're talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us they're, they're talking with Jesus about his coming rejection and crucifixion. Peter kind of busts in at this point and, and says, uh, Lord, you know what, it would, if you want, it would be a really good thing to build some tabernacles, some huts, some shelters here up on the mountain, and, and you and Moses and Elijah, you can stay in those huts. What? Last time we explained to you that he's, he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. One of those mandatory feasts given to the, to the nation of Israel three in a year to celebrate God's good work among them in the Feast of Tabernacles to, to point forward to the time when Messiah will dwell among his people. And I think that's exactly what Peter is taking out of this. He is seeing a vision of the kingdom. He, he understands. Peter can remember what was said to him six days prior. And so for Peter, seeing, seeing Jesus in his glory, seeing Moses, seeing Elijah, what he concludes is, is that the kingdom is now really here. And so let's build the tabernacles and let's celebrate the reality that the kingdom is breaking in. By the way, it's six months until Passover, which means that it's exactly the time of year for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is very much on Peter's mind. But Peter doesn't realize what he's talking about, Luke says. And I think what Luke is being communicating to us here is what Peter doesn't really understand is that the kingdom cannot break in just yet because there's been no cross. Without the suffering, there can't be the glory. Without the cross, there can't be the crown. Peter, we cannot bring in the kingdom here. I must suffer and die, and be raised from the dead, and then my kingdom comes. First tantalizing aspect of all of this is that Jesus is indescribable, wouldn't you say? Pretty much indescribable. Secondly, second aspect is I'm calling an awesome presence, an awesome presence. Verse 5, while he, that is Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, check it out, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Mid-sentence. Mid-sentence, Peter is, is cut off. He is offering to, to aid Jesus here in the, in the bringing in of the kingdom by building these huts, and he is 
cut off. And he's cut off in a most awesome way. The very presence, the very voice of, of God the Father. And it terrifies him. It terrifies him. Actually, Mark chapter 9 and verse 6 in a parallel account indicates that they are already very unnerved, very, very afraid by what's going on. The, 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 the vision of the transfigured Christ, the, the Moses and Elijah talking here, this is not humdrum. They are, they are very afraid. And now they're going to get very much more afraid to the place where they're going to fall like dead men on the ground. What happens here is, according to Matthew, a, a bright cloud overshadows them. Again, the language is straining to, to try to express the reality of what's going on here. But there's this, there's this cloud-like something that's exceedingly bright, and it, I think the picture is it's just sort of growing. And, and consuming the airspace. The Shekinah glory of God. It is the Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah, interesting word, it does not appear in the scriptures. It is a Jewish word, though. It's of later origin. It comes from a Hebrew root. It means dwelling. It means dwelling. When in the Old Testament, when God did, uh, dwelt among his people, he did so in, a bright, in the form of a bright cloud. That was what was tangible to the human senses. This, this bright cloud that displayed his glory, the glory cloud of God. We find it in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, when the tabernacle is complete at the end of the book of Exodus. The glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God descends onto the Holy of Holies, and the King of the universe takes up residency in his throne room. We see it in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, where when Solomon's temple is completed, the, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God again descends and takes up residence within the temple. This is the Shekinah glory cloud of God. This is the visible representation of God the Father dwelling among his people. And it's unnerving. It's terrifying. It's otherworldly. It's awesome in the proper English sense of the word. Meaning it, it induces awe and fear. From the cloud, a voice. A voice. And the voice says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, the perceptive reader of Matthew's gospel, one might say, I've heard that before. I've read that before. Somewhere else, God the Father has spoken those words, and you would be correct. At Jesus' baptism, at the initiation of his public ministry when he is set aside in a, in a formal way to begin this public work, 
The Father speaks out of heaven to both Jesus and to those who are witnesses and says these same words, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But here he adds something. You notice uh, he adds on the little thing, listen to him. Listen to him. Not Moses. Not the prophets. Not your own heart. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now this statement here, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This, this, this is not um, some random language. This, this expression, this statement of God the Father in reference to his son is, is pregnant with messianic meaning. It is drawn, it's a composite actually of three different passages in the Old Testament that are, that are drawn together and each one contributes something to an understanding of, of who is Messiah. So let's track them down together. Let's begin with this. This is my beloved son. Again, to one who is familiar with their Old Testament, it should take us back into the book of Psalms. So it would take us to Psalms chapter 2. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is universally understood to be a messianic psalm, a psalm that speaks of the, of the reign and the rule of Messiah. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us throw off the yoke of God. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the kind of psalm that says, I want to be on Messiah's side, right? I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on Messiah's side. I like the old King James, by the way, here in verse 12, where it says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. I think it's vivid. 
This is my son, the messianic king, the, the conqueror of nations, the writer of wrongs, the one who will crush his enemies. This is my son, the glorious one, the one you've longed for, the coming king. With whom I am well pleased, he says. Referencing us into Isaiah in chapter 42. And dropping us right square in the middle of the messianic mystery of glory and suffering. Isaiah 42, the servant song section of Isaiah. Let's speak of Messiah as the, as the suffering servant. It begins in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established peace in the earth. And on he goes. My chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Go back for a minute to Matthew 17. This is my beloved son, the Psalm 2 victorious, conquering son with whom I am well pleased, the, the, the suffering servant of Messiah, of God, who is Messiah. And then finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the listen to him is drawn. Listen to him. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we have the prophecy of the coming prophet like unto Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. How does this one get pulled together? I think because Moses is standing there on the mountain with him. Moses writes in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. You shall listen to him. God the Father is, is attesting by, by pulling from his word the reality that has eluded the disciples to this point. Yes, he is the conquering king, Psalm 2. Yes, he is the suffering servant, Isaiah 42. You shall listen to him. You must listen to him, Deuteronomy 18, 15. He is the Messiah in all its fullness, the fullness of that title. Well, how do the disciples react to this kind of Bible study? When they heard this, 
verse 6, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. They fell to the ground and were terrified. Listen, it's never a good thing for God the Father to speak directly to you. It is not a good thing. For God the Father to speak directly to sinful man is a terrifying experience. Terrifying experience. Search the Scriptures. When someone comes into the presence of God like that, it is unnerving in the max. Children of Israel knew this all too well, right? When God came down on Mount Sinai to speak, the people said, listen, Moses, you go talk to him. And then come tell us what he said. Exodus 20 and verse 19, let not God speak to us or we will die. We need a mediator. We need an intermediary. We need need someone between us. We need a priest. We need need someone to hold God's hand and our hand because we cannot hold his alone. We dare not come into his presence. Praise God Jesus is that one, huh? Praise God Jesus is that one. He is the mediator. Between God and man, Paul says it this way, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, Matthew 17, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What an amazing display of tender mercy, huh? For Jesus to to intercede as it were. To touch them speak tenderly to them, to raise them back up and say, it's, it's okay. I'm here. I'm here. Jesus displaying his glory is indescribable. The presence of the Father is awesome. The third aspect, I'm calling kingdom and contingency. Kingdom and contingency. How do glory and suffering fit together? How do you fit Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 together? Well, as they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. What? Doesn't this seem counterintuitive? First read. 
Why doesn't Jesus say to them, tell everyone? Tell everyone. Yes, there is suffering, but, but there is glory to fall. Tell them. Tell them who I am. Tell them what you saw. You'll get on all the television talk shows, I promise you. Listen, some kid can say he was in heaven for five minutes and write a book. Then to be in the presence of the glorified Christ, and they really were, by the way, as opposed to that five-year-old kid who's got an overactive imagination. But that's another sermon for another day. You would expect them to spread the news far and wide. Far and wide. And yet Jesus, just the opposite, he tells them, don't tell anybody. Now, the don't tell anybody is an absolute prohibition. That means don't tell the other disciples. There are nine other people at the foot of the mountain saying, you guys are up there a long time. What happened? What'd you do? What'd you see? I'd love to tell you, but I can't. If you saw what I saw. I don't know, maybe that led to some of their further arguments later on about who's greatest in the kingdom, right? We don't know about that for sure, but, but it's clear there's an absolute prohibition here. They're to hang on to this, they're to keep a lid on it. Tell nobody. There's no indication, that, by the way, that they um, violate this command. I think they do. They keep a lid on it. Tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why does he say this? He says it is because he, we're, we have moved to a new time, a, a new phase of his ministry. The focus now is on the cross. It's on his, it's in, his impending suffering, his rejection, his death, and then his glorious resurrection. And until that time, they need, to, they need to keep their eye on the ball and they need to not provide anything to either his enemies or to his friends that would inflame their passions for the ruling Messiah to come and throw off Rome. Don't think these ways. It's over. The offer of the kingdom has been withdrawn. It's no longer close at hand. The preaching message has changed. The focus now is my death and resurrection. Thankful to Mark, by the way, here, for he inserts in Mark 9 and verse 10 that, uh, that they seize upon the statement he makes here about the Son of Man will rise from the dead, and that's what occupies their conversation coming down the mountain. You can, you, know, you can sort of imagine it, I suppose. So what do you think he means by that? And so they're, they're discussing it, evidently, as they're, as they're hiking back down the mountain together with him. And I, I, again, I just sort of imagine Jesus leading the way, and they're falling behind, and he can overhear, and they are back and forth talking about what do you think he means by all this? And after they've, they've kind of batted that mister around a while... Then they, they turn to him and they, and they find their courage and, and they ask him a question here. And the, and the question they ask him, I think has been, at least the seed form of it, has been rattling around in the back of their minds for a while now. It's prompted, I think, 
by the, uh, the, the uh, scribes, that is the, the, the um, Bible scholars of Israel, who have, I believe, used it as a, as a means to say to them, this really can't be Messiah because the prophecy of, of Elijah hasn't been fulfilled. Maybe seeing Elijah on the mountain kind of brings it all together for them. But in any case, verse 10, after batting around a while, the, the discussion of what he meant by rising from the dead, the disciples ask him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I think this is a summary question. I think this is, a, this is a question to get the discussion started. It's a question with regard to Jesus and the prophesy of, prophecy rather, of Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. So we need to turn there to Malachi 4, 5 and 6. And at least read it so that it's Since it's in their minds, it needs to be in our minds. How's that? So Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament. When Malachi puts down his pen, God stops speaking to his people and is silent for four centuries. He only begins to speak again to his people when John the Baptist comes on the scene. And here's how the book closes. These are the last words of God, the Old Testament. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. End of the book. The scribes know well that prophecy. The disciples know well that prophecy. They are, they are looking for Elijah. The scribes have taken a position that, that Jesus can't be Messiah because Elijah has not come. And I, and I think they've probably thrown that in the face of the disciples. Elijah must come first. You see it, verse 10? It's the same verb, by the way, that in verse 21 of chapter 16, where Jesus must go to Jerusalem. I think it's, it's that divine must. It, wouldn't, it's not, it would be nice if Elijah came first and then Messiah. It's it's probable that that Elijah will come first and then Messiah. Elijah must come first and then Messiah. And if Elijah has not come, Messiah cannot come. So I imagine the uh, the disciples here are, are probably kind of rolling this around in their head and they're thinking, okay, I got it now. We saw him on the mountain, right? He came. All's good. Let's get back to bringing the kingdom in, Jesus. 
Malachi says in his prophecy there that, uh, that the coming of Elijah is, is, is going to turn the people back to God. Hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. That's, a, that's just a way of speaking about a time of national repentance which turns the people of God back to their king, to the Messiah. And it's going to happen, according to Malachi, before the, the coming of the, of the great and terrible day of the Lord, before this time of judgment that the, that the prophets say will precede the coming in of the kingdom. So maybe, uh, maybe also swirling around in their mind is, is this idea of um, how, how does this fit together with the whole suffering notion? I mean, if Elijah must come first, Elijah was on the mountain, and you're still talking about suffering. Please put it together for us. Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? First, and he answered. He answers their question. And I'm glad he did, by the way. If he hadn't answered this question, we would have just an incredible conundrum in terms of sorting out the the, uh, Old and New Testament. He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's a very significant statement. Because what he is saying is that there, there is an ongoing validity to the Elijah prophecy. You see it? Elijah is coming. Future. He is coming. The prophecy is unfulfilled. Elijah, or one, as we will learn, like unto Elijah, must come first. No Elijah, no kingdom. Therefore, since the Elijah prophecy remains unfulfilled, what can we conclude about the kingdom? Think with me. What can we conclude about the kingdom? Thank you. Thank you. It is not here. It is not here. One more time. It is not here. It's not here. And I'm really glad, by the way, because if this is it, and I told someone at lunch this week, I want my money back. Because this is not what the prophets wrote about. It's not here. It is still future. That means, get this, we're not in it. We're not in it. There are better days coming. I'm kind of glad. Are you glad? I'm kind of tired of evil winning the day. I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And then Jesus goes on and really complicates things, doesn't he? But I say to you that Elijah already came. What? Elijah is coming. I say to you he already came. 
and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So which is it? Is Elijah still awaiting to come, or did Elijah come? Yes. Exactly. Yes. All right, I'm going to get really simple. Cookies on the bottom shelf. You ready? Two comings of Christ, two Elijah's. Two comings of Christ, two Elijah's. Not one Elijah and two comings. That those who would tell us we're in the kingdom now would have to postulate. Two comings, two Elijah's. Now, why wasn't this made clear a long, long time ago? Why didn't God tell Adam about that? Well, we know why he didn't tell Adam, because he didn't know about Elijah. But why didn't, he write, why didn't he write after that? Because we're, we're into this realm I'm calling kingdom and contingency. Kingdom and contingency. The, the truth of the reality of the two comings of Christ could not be revealed and was not revealed until the nation had rejected him the first time at his coming. Work with me on this. Go back to chapter 11 of Matthew and verse 14. I have permission, by the way. Um, someone told me before we started, I said, boy, it's, I got a lot this morning. And they said, just go for it, man. I'm not going anywhere. So, Gary, you and I, we're going to stay here. We'll see if we, uh, we're good. We're, we're good. Stay with me here. So, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14, where Jesus says there, If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Matthew 11, the events narrated in Matthew 11 take place prior to the events narrated in Matthew chapter 12. The reason that is important is because in Matthew chapter 11, there is still an opportunity at this time that if they will receive it, that is, if they will humble themselves and truly repent and truly receive and believe the message of John the Baptist acting in a capacity of Elijah, the prophet to come, then the kingdom will come to them. But as chapter 12 makes exceedingly clear, they want nothing to do with Messiah. And so they turn on him. The nation in chapter 12, represented by their leadership, they reject the Messiah. And in fact, they not only reject him, but they attribute this, the spirit-produced miracles that he has been performing to the power of Satan. They say that the anointed of God is anointed of Beelzebub. And they commit the unpardonable sin. And the offer of the kingdom is withdrawn. It is withdrawn. Therefore, back to chapter 17 and verse 12, Therefore I say to you that he already came, but they did not recognize him. They did not recognize him. 
They wanted nothing to do with him. Their repentance was superficial. And they did to him whatever they wished. Wait a minute, I thought Herod the Tetrarch had John killed. He did. But Jesus is saying here that the leadership of the nation was complicit in the murder of John the Baptist. They did to him whatever they wished. He told them to repent. He told them the kingdom was at hand. He told them the opportunity that they had long sought had finally arrived. And they turned their backs. And they killed him. And Jesus says, they're going to kill me too. So also, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hand. Now, I admit this is difficult to understand, to be sure. And there's no way that we're going to iron out all the wrinkles. This is like a piece of aluminum foil that you've crumbled up, and then you try to smooth it back out, right? You can kind of get it flat, but you don't get all the wrinkles out. We're not going to get all the wrinkles out of this. Let it, let it settle in on you for a minute. The nation of Israel had a moral and spiritual obligation to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to receive him as their king. He made to them a a legitimate offer of the kingdom. And they refused him. And there is no forgiveness for that generation, it says. Now you're thinking, yeah, but, but Peter says over in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that all this happened by the, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Yeah, it did. It absolutely did. But that doesn't alleviate their moral obligation. This is just, this is part of the mystery of sovereignty and human responsibility. It is is merely one more subset. They are not relieved of their responsibility to have repented and believed and received their Messiah any more than a person sitting here this morning is somehow relieved of their obligation to believe and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Discussions of the sovereignty of God are a different discussion. And it is never, ever an excuse for unbelief. Ever. Kingdom and contingency, just a subset of sovereignty and human responsibility. And that is, a, that is a philosophical dilemma that is not resolvable. It's not resolvable. And when anyone says they have resolved it, 
all they have done is shortchanged truth on one side or the other. They either have diminished the sovereignty of God below that which the Scripture teaches in the assertion of human will and the freedom of the human will, or they have overstated the sovereignty of God in such a fashion that, that humanity has become merely a robot without culpabilities. There are ditches on both sides of the road and people fall into them all the time. God is not embarrassed by his sovereignty. He doesn't need us to act as his apologist in this matter. He is really not embarrassed by it. And you know what? If you were sovereign, you wouldn't be embarrassed by it either. In fact, it might be one of your favorite characteristics. (laughs) Since most of us try to assert it anyway, right? But God is not embarrassed by human responsibility either. We have to hang on to them both. Same time. By faith. By faith. And Elijah, I believe, Elijah-like individual is coming again. I believe he is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 11 as one of the two witnesses that preached to the nation of Israel in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. The fruit of that ministry of the, true witness, of the two witnesses is a, is a re- national repentance among the Jews. It leads to 144,000 who become Jewish evangelists, who continue to preach and propagate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the tribulation period, producing converts among the nation of Israel and among the Gentiles who have remained during the tribulation, many of whom are martyred for their faith. And at the critical moment, When the nation in its capital city is is on the edge of extinction, Messiah returns. He returns in a Psalm 2 fashion. He crushes the nations. He establishes his long prophetic kingdom. And the people of Israel embrace him, taking to their lips the words of Isaiah 53, written in the past tense. We didn't know who he was, but we do now, and we are undone. That is the Zechariah 12 prophecy. They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Two comings, two Elijahs. Okay? So what do we do with all this? Let's tie a bow around it here. You ever been in a place where your faith has been a little wobbly? A little bit of despair kind of coming in? You ever experienced that? If you haven't, you're lying to me. Right? It's a human condition. What happens when, when we find ourselves in that place is that our Jesus is too small. That's what it really means. Why were the disciples in, in such... Uh, difficulty and despair here is because their, their view of Jesus was too small. It needed to be enlarged. And so what happened? They went up on a mountain and Jesus enlarged their view. That's what we need. 
But we're not going to get taken up on a mountain. We're not going to see Jesus peel back his flesh. We're not going to be overwhelmed by the brightness of his glory. We're not going to hear the voice of God Almighty. We're not going to be pushed to our faces in dread of our existence and hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We're not going to ever experience that. And we don't have to. You see, the really cool thing is, is that Peter who was there, writes decades later that we have something even more sure than that. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. We have the Word of God. We have the Word of God. More sure, more more powerful, more able to to renew and restore our faltering faith and hope than a vision on a mountain, than a voice out of the Shekinah glory cloud of God. If your faith is shaky this morning, the anxieties are are nipping at the edges, or or, or maybe now you're feeling like they're up to your nose, you're on your tiptoes kind of thing, whatever it be, whether it's illness or, or economic situations or, or personal conflicts or, or, God forbid, death. You need to go to the Word of God. It is here in the Scriptures that we will see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, everything's all right. Let's play, pray. Our Father, we need to see Jesus. Not a one-sided, one-dimensional paper cutout. Not a coloring picture from Sunday school. Not Not a video image on a movie screen. We need to see the real Jesus, the living Lord, the one who came and suffered and died and drank the cup of the wrath of God to the last drop on our behalf, who hung on that Roman cross and absorbed the wrath for our sin fully, finally, and completely. The one whom you raised from the dead on the third day, conquering death, and raised to your right hand, where he intercedes for us before the throne of grace, waiting the day you send him back to claim his kingdom, to crush the rebellion, to undo the work of Satan in the garden. And to bring in the long-promised millennial reign. Father, when life's problems overwhelm us, and they are real, and they are hard, we need to see Jesus. May you help us go to the Word of God that we might find Him there. 
Amen and amen. God bless you, beloved. Have a great Sunday.